Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American. For the seven days starting February 14th, I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll celebrate Valentine's Day by bringing you the bad and good news about the online dating scene with psychologist Robert Epstein. And Scott Johnson will tell us about his Myelin Repair Foundation and how it's a model for a new kind of outcome-oriented biomedical research. First up, Robert Epstein. He's a visiting scholar at the University of California, San Diego. He's also a contributing editor for Scientific American Mind magazine and the host of his own show on Sirius Satellite Radio called Psyched. He's the author of the article, The Truth About Online Dating in the Current Scientific American Mind. To find out more, I called him at his home in San Diego. Hi, Dr. Epstein. How are you today? Good, Steve. How are you? I'm okay. So tell me about online dating. How did you get so interested in the subject, first of all? Well, partly because I was doing some online dating. That made me very curious. Then I learned that there were researchers, people like me, doing legitimate research on online dating. People at MIT and Boston University and other good places, and they were trying to understand it uh, scientifically, uh, mainly using surveys, but using other techniques as well. Okay, let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, do we know how many people are engaged in online dating in this country? We don't know exactly. If you take the numbers that are released by the big online dating companies, of course, you're going to get a uh, a highly inflated figure, that would suggest 50 or 60 million or more. If you use some survey data done by some independent organizations, the numbers come down, but it's at least in the tens of millions for sure, and the numbers are growing fast. So let's talk about the, some of the things in the article. First of all, the the lack of complete honesty on the part of people advertising themselves online. Yes, well, some form of deception is probably part of courting, uh, not just for humans, but for other uh, other mammalian species as well. So some form of deception or exaggeration might just be what you need to do in courting, but online, you see, takes it to a whole new level because the online world is, of course, virtual, meaning you can do or say anything, you can be anyone, and... People quickly discover that when they're trying to do some online courting, and unfortunately, it gets way out of hand, and people have investigated this a number of different ways so far, and I did my own bit of research, uh, some, some uh, collected some new data for this article, and it is, it's pretty frightening, actually, because the, the deception can get crazy. Talk about the age discrepancies that you found. I uh, collected some information from Match.com, which is one of the biggest services. All I did, it's so simple, I just took down ages of a 1,000 men, the ages of a 1,000 women, mm-hmm. and plotted them on a histogram to see what I got. And in fact, if the people were, t- were being honest, what you would get is pretty much a smooth line for both males and females. That's not what I found. For males, I found a couple of spikes at certain ages, like age 36. If you get a spike and then a dip, that suggests that more men are calling themselves 36 than are really 36. Mm -hmm. For women, I got three huge spikes. One was at age 29, which makes sense because, you see, that in our society is a socially acceptable age, and then a big dip after that. Uh, Another at age 35, which is, again, I guess for women, a socially acceptable age if you're older than 35, if you call yourself 35, well, that's not so bad. And then there was a third one, a smaller one at age 44. 
these dips, some of them were, uh, or I should say, these spikes followed by the dips, those were about nine times as large as you'd expect by chance. So there's no question that there's a lot of deception going on on the age issue and many other issues as well. Yeah, some of the other studies have looked at height and weight. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, sure. In fact, uh, uh, men lie about certain things that women don't care much about for themselves. That is, men lie about some things, women lie about others. Men lie about, for example, uh, educational level and income because, again, in our society it's important that you be educated and have a high income to attract uh, a female. Uh, women tend to lie a little bit about weight, men a little less so. So pretty much everything you can think of. In fact, uh, one study suggests that about 90% of the people online lie about something. That's a big number. In the real world, you can lie about whether, for example, about whether you are uh, uh, in a marriage. And and some people do that. Men do that, certainly online. Uh, possibly 10%, maybe even 20% of men uh, who say they're single online are actually married. You can lie if you're if you meet someone in a bar. You can lie about certain things, uh, what your job is, and how much money you make, and so on. But online allows total virtual construction of a new person. That's very different. Right. In person, I can't lie about my height. You, there's certain things you cannot lie about. You can't lie about your your race, your height, your weight. But uh, you know, online you can. It, it's it's more than lying. It's it's you know it's. It's exciting in a way because you can become a different person. And uh, one thing I didn't mention in the article is that right now online, there are a lot of women who are not real at all. They're not real at all in the sense that uh, there are companies in Nigeria. I mean, this has been well documented. Uh, there are companies in Nigeria that employ people that fill up small office buildings there that simply create virtual women. And they uh, then prey upon men, mainly in America, to some extent in Europe as well. And they, they over time, build up an email relationship and then try to get these men to send them money. Wow, fascinating. Uh, you, you talk in the article about scientific testing realities and, and how important they are in trying to figure out what online dating really is and whether or not it works. So you have to have reliable testing, and you have to actually be sure that you're measuring what you think you're measuring are the two points that you raise. So how does online dating stack up on those fronts? Well, this is an area which, unfortunately, is uh, is very disturbing right now because some of the big companies out there are making money by saying, hey, we have a test. We have a test that will allow us to find not just someone you'll have fun with, but that will allow us to find your soulmate. Uh, one of the biggest companies out there, actually, uh, that's what they thrive on. That's how they make their money, is promising you that they can do that with a test. Right. We've all seen the, the thousands of commercials for, for what you're talking about. Yeah, because that company got an infusion of about $100 million in uh, new investment money not long ago, and that's why you see so many ads. Well, the reality is, and this this has been confirmed by some of the top people in the field of psychology, the reality is no one knows how to do that with a test. No one knows how to give to give you a test and then use that test to find someone who you will uh, get along with, uh, uh, you know, 
and certainly no one knows how to find your soulmate with a, with a, some sort of a psychological test. All they're doing probably, as far as we can tell, is, is trying to set you up with people who have similar scores on the test. But, you know, that doesn't really work in the real world. First of all, you don't know if when you meet them you're going to have any kind of attraction or chemistry, if you're going to feel safe or comfortable. The test tells you nothing about that, and that's absolutely critical. Uh, also, you know, in the real world, uh, we often are attracted to people who are not like us. You know, it, it, you know, we, we, you hear that all the time, opposites attract. Well, that's an oversimplification, but the fact is a test in which uh, you, you match people up according to uh, similar scores is bound to fail. And this brings me to what's called the false negative problem, which in the world of, of dating, that's a serious problem. That means that, that you're going to make mistakes every now and then by, by saying, this person is not right for you. That's a false negative. And you're never even going to show the person that possible mate because of a, you know, a, a, a score that person got on a test. I mean, that's called a false negative. There's a, a section of the article where you talk about this kind of new world of virtual dating that the MIT Media Lab is, is uh, at the forefront of. Uh, what's that all about, and, and why do you think it might be superior to just the questionnaire-type online dating? Well, to me, the bottom line in my research I did on this topic is that what we have now in online dating is fairly primitive, but that there's some cool things happening. One is, uh, as I mentioned, this virtual dating possibility. This has been explored a little bit now with uh, some, some software developed by people at MIT's uh, Media Lab. In this kind of scenario, you can actually go online with your potential mate and go somewhere together as if you're on a date. Now, they did it in such an incredibly primitive way that it's, it's, it's hardly even worth mentioning, but the point is that this kind of, of possibility is being developed so that at some point you'll be able to have, uh, you know, something like a, a real date with someone, but do it virtually, which means the safety issue is taken care of. And you'll find out how you interact with someone in some uh, semi-real setting or even a real setting. Maybe you can go to some exotic place. Maybe you can even go to the Champs-Élysées in Paris. Or maybe you can go down to the, the local fast food joint with them. But do it virtually and interact with them. And the other thing that, that is kind of exciting now is, and it's beginning to happen, is uh, using a community approach for online dating. Right now, if you're you sign up with eHarmony or Match.com or any of the other big services, you're alone. You're completely alone. It's like being uh, at a huge bar, uh, but going without your, your guy friends or your girlfriends, you're really alone. But in the real world, the community is very helpful in trying to determine whether someone is right for you. And some of the new services allow you to go online with friends and family and have have, you know, your best friend with you searching for potential partners, checking people out. So that's the new community approach to online dating. So if you take the possibility of virtual online dating and community online dating and you start to, you, you start to make these things add up online, it does start to get exciting. And these things are happening. They're happening now. They're, they're being developed. So you have the online equivalent of when Michael Corleone takes that woman in Italy out for a walk. <laughs> followed, followed by the entire family stretching out for a quarter of a mile behind them. <laughs> well, that would be an extreme case, but uh, for sure it does help to have the community with you. 
And in the real world, you see, even when we start dating someone, there, there are people checking that person out. Or, or sometimes, you know, we get fixed up. The community is important. It gives you a big reality check. Being completely alone, especially in the world of, of online dating where, where there is so much deception, uh, not a good way to proceed. And let's, uh, let's tell everybody, you actually have a relationship with one of these community dating sites, right? I do. I, I did a little consulting for, uh, one of these, uh, these companies called Engage.com. Uh, that is developing the community type approach. There are other companies as well that are doing this, and I, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be one of the uh, one of the important areas in which uh, this online dating moves in the future. Robert Epstein, very interesting stuff. Thanks very much. Absolutely, Steve. Thank you. Robert Epstein's article on online dating is available free at the Scientific American Mind website. That's www.siammind.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, midday naps make you more susceptible to heart attacks. Story two, the evolution-creationism battle has officially matured to the point where there's now a journal devoted solely to defending evolution in the classroom. Story three, believing that your physical activity is exercise can actually make it more beneficial. And story four, researchers have found evidence that West African chimpanzees used stone tools to crack nuts 4,300 years ago. We'll be back with the answer, but first, Scott Johnson is a businessman who thought that a focused, outcome-oriented approach to medical research might bring about some help for his own multiple sclerosis. To that end, he established the Myelin Repair Foundation. Scientific American named him one of the top 50 research technology and policy leaders in December for that effort, and I recently called him at his office in Saratoga, California. Mr. Johnson, good to talk to you today. Well, thank you very much. It's great to talk to you, Steve. Tell us about multiple sclerosis. I know that you have multiple sclerosis. Tell us what it is and how's your particular condition? Well, I uh, um, have had MS for a long time. Uh, I was diagnosed at a relatively early age at around 20, and so I've now had it for 30 years. And uh, multiple sclerosis is a disease where myelin is damaged, and myelin is the um, protein coating on your nerves in your central nervous system. And so basically you can think of it as insulation on the nerves, which, which helps signals transfer rapidly through your central nervous system. And what happens is when that myelin is damaged, the signals uh, break down and, and, and are unable to travel uh, through the central nervous system. And so therefore the result is uh, sensory, motor, cognitive, and vision problems. So people are familiar with electrical wiring in their homes, and they always have the that little rubbery insulation on the outside. So myelin is the biological equivalent of that. Absolutely. That's absolutely correct. And then since the damage can be anywhere in your spinal cord or brain, the variety of symptoms is, is very broad. And so everyone's mix of symptom, symptoms can be uh, uh, pretty different. And correct me if I'm wrong, but perhaps the best-known example of, of an MS patient is Martin Sheen's president character on the West Wing. That's correct. Uh, I think he uh, uh, kind of helped put MS on the map, but there were people like Richard Pryor, who was very severe, severely impacted by the disease, right, right. And, and many others. It's a long list. Now, tell everybody who you are and, and how that plays into what your abilities were in terms of setting up this foundation. Well, that's a good question because uh, um, and a good setup because my background, I... I 
if you would have asked me five years ago if I'd be involved in a nonprofit full, on a full-time basis or in academic medical research, I would have thought you were crazy because uh, my background, I was originally an engineer, then went back to business school, got an MBA, worked uh, in consulting at the Boston Consulting Group, then at a Fortune 100 company, and then after that uh, did uh, several startup companies. So all of my career has been in the commercial world, and uh, this is kind of a fluke that I even uh, uh, that, I'm, that I'm doing this today. Now, what what exactly is the foundation, and why wasn't the typical course of biomedical research good enough for you? Well, it's a good question because the, the the thing that really changed the second change in my life, I'd say the first major change in my life was being diagnosed with MS, and the second was actually seeing this short story, a short little one-paragraph item in Business Week about uh, repair and MS. And, uh, you know, for all the time prior to that, I it was always been looking for a cure, looking for a cure, and I did not think that repair was possible. So that little one-paragraph story led me to start talking to people who were involved in current research. And there were two real revelations that came out of that. One was that it looked like there'd been enough recent discoveries that it appeared that repair was a possibility in the central nervous system. And second was the more I learned about how the current system for academic medical research uh, is conducted, the more I realized that uh, really if you tried to design a system that would not result in treatments, basically you'd come up with the current system. Talk about the current system, what its drawbacks are, and what your foundation as a model addresses specifically. I think how we characterize our sciences most science is investigator-driven. In other words, it's, it's prompted by an idea that an individual uh, investigator has for an experiment, and then they go out and they raise funds to do it. Um, our belief is that once there's been a certain number of discoveries, if you become outcome-directed and outcome-focused, then then uh, you take those discoveries and make sure that they're dri- driving towards treatments, um, that that is a significant um, element that's missing, and that you can leverage off of all that money that's been spent to um, build up the, the basic knowledge. One thing we try and do is accelerate the rate of discovery by uh, collaboration, by getting uh, scientists across disciplines to work together. And then I think the second thing we try that we do is we are establishing a mechanism to uh, validate those discoveries uh in a manner that would be uh, uh, make them relevant to commercial entities uh, because commercial entities are the only people who can actually take something and turn it into a treatment. And then I'd say the third thing we do is we work with commercial industry to uh, facilitate that transfer. And so essentially what we're trying to do is come up with discoveries and then de-risk them as much that will make it more and more attractive for a large company to then take that discovery and turn it into a treatment that can actually be useful to people. So how long has the foundation been in existence? We started funding research uh, almost exactly two and a half years ago. Okay, so what are what are your markers for success over the next, say, two and a half to five years? Well, um, before we came into existence, we had polled sci- the scientists uh, involved in myeloid repair research and we asked them how long they believed that it would be before there would be a drug target for myeloid repair that could be licensed to a pharmaceutical company to put through clinical trials. Mm-hmm. And the consensus for that was about 15 to 20 years. So I think you could kind of say that would be roughly around 2020. Um, and so 
what we did is after we had uh, recruited what we would call a dream team of, of literally what we believe was, is the best individual in the world in each of the areas of expertise that we need to solve this particular problem, and we uh, proposed to this team that they work as a team collaboratively, that it ties together each of their labs, so it wasn't just five individuals but, but five labs, and that we work with them to put together a research plan, which is something that also is lacking in, in research. There's no overall roadmap. It's, it's investigator-driven. We Then after we proposed that idea to them, we said, well, how long in that environment do you as a team think it will take you to come up with a mild repair drug target? And after thinking about it, they felt like they could do it in five years. So since we, we started funding research in the summer of 2004, we set as our target to have one target license to a pharmaceutical company by the summer of 2009. So that really is our big stake in the ground. And the research has been going so well that we now believe we will have one, we're actually going to beat that target. So that we think we will license a target by 2008, which would be 12 years earlier than virtually anyone thought it could be done. Well, I'm sure a lot of people are going to keep an eye on that. Have you been contacted by other individuals who are looking at, at your foundation as a model for a similar kind of thing for other diseases? Yes, we have. We've had uh, actually about 46 other organizations contact us uh, interested in how we're doing this. And I think that's an important point because uh, we believe that the, the model that we're pioneering and demonstrating uh, is applicable to virtually any disease. And so as a result, you asked earlier about uh, our funding. Uh, so to date, uh, the, of the funds we've raised, uh, almost 60% of the funds have come from people who have no interest in multiple sclerosis, but instead um, are really dissatisfied with the overall uh, pace of, of coming up with new treatments for important diseases and see this model as a way to um, accelerate all disease research. And so... Uh, yeah, we're really excited by the fact that we're, uh, even after only two and a half years, we now think we're going to meet our already very aggressive goal by at least a year. Well, so That has attracted a lot of attention from other disease foundations, also from other media. Uh, there's, we've, we've had a lot of interest in, in this uh, in, in terms of trying to understand what this model is, how it works, and the impact it can have. Yeah, and I'm sure that there's going to be a, a synergistic effect there because the more people with, with different conditions hear about it, the more they're going to be interested in trying to start up their own version of this. Well, that, and I think the other thing that's synergistic is that what we're finding is, is obviously if, if we can accomplish something in, in four years that someone thought was going to take almost 20 years, then uh, think of the additional knowledge that comes out earlier. And so that knowledge can be applied to other diseases. In addition to that, we believe that, that what we're uh, learning about myelin and myelin repair will have implications for other diseases. Uh, myelin is, a, is, is almost, uh, I believe, it's almost half of the, the, the volume of the brain. And uh, so understanding myelin will have significant impacts, we believe, for many other uh, diseases like possibly like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's and things like that. Very interesting stuff, and obviously we wish you the best of luck, and, and you know, we'll be certain to touch base a year or two down the road and, and see what kind of progress is being made. The rate of progress here is, is, is really rapid. I think the one thing anyone who's involved with Modern Repair Foundation uh, uh, in any capacity, it's, it's amazing how rapidly things change from, from week to week, actually. So uh, 
uh, we'd love to check back in and, uh, and, and give you an update. Scott Johnson, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. For more on the Myelin Repair Foundation, just go to myelinrepair.org. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, napping bad for the heart. Story two, new journal just for defending evolution in schools. Story three, simply believing your activity is exercise makes it more effective. And story four, researchers have found evidence that West African chimps used stone tools to crack nuts 4,300 years ago. Time's up. Story four is true. Researchers have found evidence that chimps in West Africa used stone tools to crack nuts over four millennia ago. That pushes known chimp tool use back thousands of years and also suggests that chimps and humans might have inherited that behavior from a long-ago common ancestor. The finding appeared in the current issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and you can read more in David Biello's February 12th article on our website called Chimpanzee Nut-Bashing Technology Proves Thousands of Years Old. Story 3 is true. Physical activity labeled as exercise made it more effective to the people doing it. That's according to a study of hotel cleaning staff published in the journal Psychological Science. Those who were told that cleaning rooms, making beds, that kind of thing was a good workout were in better shape after a month than those who weren't told anything. Could be a placebo effect or possibly the belief that they were exercising carried over to diet and other lifestyle changes for those who were told that they were working out all day. For more, see the story on our website called Belief in Exercise May Make It More Effective. And story two is true. The new quarterly journal Outreach and Education and Evolution is intelligently designed to aid teachers who find themselves under attack by creationists and intelligent design proponents. The official announcement of the new journal took place February 12th. That's Darwin's birthday. Sounds like they have the right guys on the masthead, too. The co-editors are evolutionary biologist Niles Eldritch and his son Greg, who's a high school science teacher. All of which means that story one about napping being bad for the heart is totally bogus because a study out of Greece found that a nice midday snooze seemed to offer some protection against heart-related deaths. For more, check out the February 14th episode of the Daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science. You know, I visited the Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream Research Lab last year for the podcast that ran on July 5th, 2006, and they have a nap room where you, when you work there, you can bed down for 20 minutes in the middle of the day. Imagine a place... You get free ice cream and naps, and you're more than four years old. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast.siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com. The Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Yesterday.